Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Thursday, April 28th, 2022. This is your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with Chris. Hello, everyone. Recording a day early this week. Thank you. Yes. I think there's something super secret and important happening. Yeah, just a family road trip. Oh, okay. I was going to play it off like you were having a merger or something. We could pump your stock. Oh, yeah, we should totally pump my stock. Oh, no, the coin that we haven't launched yet. We got to pump that coin. Oh, yes, the JB coin. Or is it because the dad coin already exists, so Uh, we couldn't... We couldn't scam everyone with that. Maybe we could somehow do like a takeover of that project. I hear that also is a popular route to go. Just do a little project takeover. If there is a governance token, we could buy up all the right. supply or something. We could mint some JB coin, then sell that to buy their governance token. I've heard back from listeners that sometimes when we go on these tangents, they have no idea what we're talking about. But yeah. But you know what? You just uh, absorb through osmosis of the ear. Yeah, you're... Your point is well taken, though, and I will keep this in mind for other podcasts. I I should play up the mystery of what I'm doing. Make it seem cool. Like I'm going on a mission. We're sitting here in your global headquarters, which is like this high-tech... Podcast studio. Welcome to the studio. It's more like a high-tech mansion from a sci-fi movie. Or a townhouse, maybe. (laughs) It's like an (laughs) Apple store... As far as the eye can see. No, it's an anti-Apple store, really, because it's only Linux machines and it's wires everywhere. (laughs) So whatever an anti-Apple store is. I was shocked a little bit before (laughs) as I brushed some wires. Yeah, I tell you what, you got to be careful because otherwise it makes your hair stand up. It's real bad. But, you know, those open, unshielded cables help with the audio quality. That's how we get it warm, get that warm sound. Sarcasm warning, sarcasm warning. That should be a podcasting 2.0 spec right there. I don't know, Dad, there's a lot going on this week in Bitcoin town. It's been a busy week. There are a couple of things we want to bring up. Some of these news articles, I don't think we can comment on too much because there's not a lot there yet. At the same time, you almost feel remiss if you don't mention it. It's like the start of something big, right? Like, it's almost worth saying, like, we recognize this thing's happening, but we won't know how big of a deal it is probably for a while. Sure. And the first thing is not a big thing happening. Well, it's it's an important routine thing. It's Bitcoin Core 23.0. It's been released, and Bitcoin Core is the reference implementation of Bitcoin. You can download it from bitcoincore.org or go to the GitHub, and the GitHub is bitcoin slash bitcoin, so that would be github.com slash bitcoin slash bitcoin. And every six months, we get a new version of Bitcoin Core, and they do a bunch of bug fixes. Sometimes there's something else in there, a, a soft fork or something, but usually it's just some bug fixes, and that's all we got this time. Bitcoin Core works better than it ever has before. It's been tested more. It's just better, but it's not exciting. This is the sign of a really healthy open source project is when they can execute on a routine schedule, they hit that schedule and they incorporate the appropriate fixes that came up during that development cycle. I know that sounds obvious, but it's actually something, it's, it's a project that, well, it's something most projects struggle with at least, right? And only a few in even the Linux space that have been around for 15 plus years can actually execute on this well. And it sort of speaks to the fact that, and this is not spoken as a Bitcoiner, this is kind of an objective statement that the premier open source project in the world today, perhaps other than the Linux kernel, is Bitcoin Core. And the level of engineering and just professionalism and competence that goes into this project is impressive in the scope of all software development globally, but especially if you compare it to the altcoins. Because if you go on MSNBC or any of these media outlets, you're going to hear a lot of people who put 
Bitcoin and Ethereum in one category together, and then they think, oh, but you know, there are all these other altcoins. Maybe there's something there. Because they're cryptocurrencies. Right, cryptocurrencies. And the simple truth is, from an engineering perspective, no. Bitcoin's a completely different animal. If Bitcoin is Mount Everest, then what would Ethereum be? Maybe a small hill? Mount St. Helens. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it used to be taller. Bitcoin Core itself, too, also is the basis that a lot of other applications are built on top of. So you may end up interacting with this without even realizing it. You may update another application and you get some of these bits. But I have a Galaxy Brain recommendation. If you want to see some of the thought that goes into developing Bitcoin Core, if you go look up the Bitcoin 2022 conference and search for the open source stage. And I think it's either day one or two. They put it all in one, but they have chapter marks. Some of the core developers are up on stage and they talk a little bit about their methodology for developing for Bitcoin. It's it's a really, really good, really good couple of talks. And I wish the Bitcoin 2020 Miami conference could have been just the open source stage because so far I've watched 2.5 days worth and I've loved every minute of it. Yeah, I, I watched those talks and it's really impressive. And that's actually what led me to participate in the Bitcoin Core PR Review Club this Wednesday, which was such a great experience. I'm more of a systems administrator type as opposed to a C programming language developer, but it was great to ask some questions and think about a pull request, which was a proposal to add more, I want to say, trace routes to some wallet functions. And basically, trace routes are this way to enable more tracking slash debugging of C functions. But you can put them into a program and you don't have to activate them. They don't create any bloat or any burden unless you activate them. But if they're there, you can activate them if you're having problems with your wallet or if you want to simply do more testing. And so they seem to be really good for doing simulations on how to efficiently track UTXOs and spend and organize coins. One of the points that was brought up on the Bitcoin 2022 open source stage is just how intense the security is around building the wallet, the Bitcoin wallet, and just what they have to think of. So I could see them wanting more tools for that because it's a it's an area of just massive thought. Yeah, and important wallets are based on the Bitcoin Core wallet, like the Spectre wallet, which is a web wallet. I think there's also a, a desktop app that is very focused on building reproducible multi-signature wallets. A great tool for your cold storage stack. And actually, Spectre Wallet is the back end for the Galoi Wallet, which is used in Bitcoin Beach. So Spectre Wallet is the, the multi-sig bank that sits behind the Galoi Wallet. Ah, oh, very good. I didn't realize. And of course, it's available on Umbral, too. I just feel like I got to mention that because that's how I've been using it. Cool. Now, our... Next story is a bit schadenfreudia, schadenfreudian, schadenfreudian, I think, because I think in our first episode, you asked me about proof of stake and I trashed proof of stake. And for everyone who hasn't heard that episode yet or doesn't remember, essentially, there are two main consensus mechanisms for cryptocurrencies today. There's proof of work, which Bitcoin and Ethereum use, and proof of work is essentially a way of using computer hardware and electricity to enter into a lottery to produce the next block. And this is important for ordering transactions, for preventing the double spending of coins, and also for security. 
And generally speaking, the security model, proof of work or proof of stake, is also the way new coins are emitted into the world. Because part of what makes cryptocurrency so revolutionary is instead of having a central authority like a king or a central reserve bank, the protocol itself distributes new coins to the miners. And so it encourages people to mine, to run the proof of work algorithm and secure the network, and they are rewarded with new tokens. And the tokens are only valuable if the network has value. Right. There's operational costs for the miners. You have the gear and the business operational costs that are going to sort of set a base price, perhaps for the coins that they're mining. So that plays into a value role as well. And there is an actual conversion of energy, or I should say electricity. That's really, it's electricity that is being converted into a digital asset. And this is why the current round of fear, uncertainty, and doubt that is being directed towards Bitcoin is always focused on energy usage because proof of work, this consensus mechanism, requires energy. And as Bitcoin grows and becomes more important in the world, more energy is being used to secure Bitcoin. And so if you don't value Bitcoin or you feel threatened by it, you can say, look at this use of energy. It's so wasteful. It's boiling the oceans. But we're going to go off on a different direction in this podcast because we're not going to go into the energy FUD. We're just going to say that essentially Bitcoin does use energy, but it's really not that much energy compared to tumble dryers, tumble dryers or Christmas lights or cruise ships. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention it doesn't involve dumping anything in the ocean routinely or blowing ginormous holes in the ground to pull out materials, which then leak poisons into the ground. Doesn't involve that either. But yeah. The dumping was the fact that cruise ships are basically floating septic tanks and the holes in the ground. I guess that was a mining. Yeah. If you go look at pictures of gold mines and silver mines and copper mines. You don't want to live there. It's bad. You can go to Colorado. There are all of these old mines and the area is super toxic. You know, just a really quick side tangent too. Mining is what we decided to call it, right? It wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion that we were going to call it mining. There was a debate on the Bitcoin talk forum. No one asked me. Right. Well, some people, there was for a short period of time in Bitcoin's history, we were considering it, calling it minting. And I've also heard it suggested by some corporate mining operations that they'd like to change the language to producing because it's just what we call it. it there's no, it's not mining necessarily. I mean, mining happens to be a pretty good analogy, but it comes with negative connotations environmentally. But if we were calling it producing or minting, it might change the way people look at it a little. At the same time, mining is accurate in that it kind of describes a commodity process. Yeah. And yep. Bitcoin happens to resemble a commodity. And it does, it does help kind of make that back-end association that Bitcoin is a form of digital gold or something like that that people can generally be comfortable with, even if it's a real narrow descriptor of Bitcoin. Which is interesting because the mining talk or debate, do we call it mining, do we call it minting, that happened before the Bitcoin digital gold narrative by quite a few years, I yeah. think. Well, I think Satoshi always kind of saw it going that way. I think Satoshi early on felt it could end up that way. And, and he did certain, he took certain steps to, to encourage that thought or that, that framing, I think. But, you know, I just bring it up, not just because, of course, we love tangents, but also just to remind people, this is an entirely new thing. We've called it mining, but we could have just as easily called it producing or minting. And maybe that helps you frame it a little bit better in your head. So this has been a digression slash recap of proof of work. And there is another consensus mechanism called proof of stake. And it is much less well understood because I believe that the only major blockchain that is secured using proof of stake is Solana now, I want to say. And I would imagine Cordana. 
There are definitely other proof-of-stake chains. Yeah, there's lots, really, but they all have different implementations. And they're all, generally speaking, garbage. I just don't see a lot of those chains being more than these kind of altcoins that they, they peak up and then they, they crash down. So the proof-of-stake concept is that you are fairly well off in terms of that blockchain, in terms of the coins that you own. And then you invest those coins back into a staking mechanism that gives you some bit of consensus generation on the network. So instead of, and I'll let you fix this in just a second because I know I'm butchering this, but instead of proof of work being what secures the network and generates the coin, they're using proof of stake. Yeah, I think you've, you've nailed it. It's kind of similar to our current world, where if you have a lot of money, let's say millions or billions of dollars, you can kind of invest that into various commercial projects, politicians. Stocks. Yeah, politicians. <laughs> that's an investment too, I guess. And the system gives you more dollars. More control. Yeah, maybe control equals money. Who knows exactly what the conversion is, but... Well, you buy lobbyists, you get laws passed that favor your business. You know, you can sort of shape consensus. Right. And we don't want to sound too salty just because we can't afford any lobbyists. So if anyone wants to do any free lobbying, get in touch. We'd gladly accept that as a yeah. or contribution. Maybe, you know, kind. we could send them a boost, like a thousand sats. <laughs> right. We could. Wait, are they sending me a boost or are we boosting no, our we'll, lobbyists? We'll boost our lobbyists. That's how we'll pay them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Here's 50 cents. Thanks for the lobbying. What's interesting is that you see these constructions in, in altcoins that often resemble some financial structure or story from the traditional financial system. And so I think the proof of stake, it kind of intuitively makes sense because it's like a savings account with an interest rate because a proof of stake validation node is you take your 32 Ethereum, which is the limit for Ethereum, and we're going to be talking about Ethereum, so we'll stick with Ethereum on this example. And 32 Ethereum is like $60,000 or something. So it's not a small amount of money. And then you put that into a special contract. So it's, it's like sending your Ethereum, you're making a transaction with your Ethereum, but instead of sending it to me or Chris, which might fail because I don't believe either of us have an Ethereum wallet, none we would admit to anyway. <laughs> But instead of sending it to somebody, you're sending it to an address that is a staking address. Only certain participants can stake. You couldn't just become a staker and have the audience start staking all of their Ethereum with us. Like you have to be a blessed staking validator, whatever it's called. Oh, so right now staking is a permissioned activity? I don't know. I'm asking if we know, because I think it is on some of the proof of work blockchains. I just don't know about Ethereum. Oh, I think on Ethereum, it's not. I think that on Ethereum, if you have 32 Ethereum, you're, you can send it into a staking contract. So this kind of makes sense if you think of a savings account, because it's like you're putting your cryptocurrency into a crypto bank account and it's generating, you know, interest, interest yeah. returns. People love that. Exactly. And, and the whole DeFi bubble that I think is kind of popping now, but maybe it's still limping along. It's been driven by this idea of getting yield on your cryptocurrency. And unfortunately, there have been a huge number of just absolute scams and Ponzi schemes based around this idea, because usually you're getting yield in a new token. It would be as if you put US dollars in a bank account and they're paying you interest in Zimbabwean dollars. Like, no one would do that. That's obviously a terrible deal. But because DeFi and cryptocurrency has confused everybody, they think that's a great deal and a great idea. And some people, I think, are just under the impression that they could sell that token when it's at the top, and they're going to make money that way. They, they think they're going to figure out how to day trade it. And 
Power to them. You know, that's a that's <laughs> a have at it. that's a mighty hot, mighty large stove you're you're touching there. So I hope I hope they learn. Yeah. But you can kind of see an issue with which is you need 32 Ethereum. That's a lot of Ethereum. And this is by design because the idea is if you have 32 Ethereum, you're invested in Ethereum and therefore you think Ethereum's good and you want the value to go up. So we can trust you to be a good validator and not censor transactions and not do anything naughty. And I, I think that I've made it clear in the past that that is a lot of assumptions. You're making a lot of assumptions about human behavior. You're assuming that one small variable price go up is enough to coerce people to behave in a very predictable way. And I think that history shows that that's a pretty bad model of human behavior and it's probably going to be a mess. But the other problem is that you do have to have 32 Ethereum to stake. And once you stake your Ethereum, the cost, quote unquote, is that you can't use the Ethereum now. You're not allowed to use it. So you're giving up the ability to sell. So proof of stake also reduces circulating supply, which is why it's a favorite model for altcoin scams. Because if you can create a new token, then convince everyone to lock it up so that they can't sell it, so that they can earn more of this token, it means that you can dump your tokens without them dumping too. So you can kind of get more money out of this Ponzi scheme faster. Well, this has kind of been broken. So this assumption that you can stake your coins and you're giving up your ability to use them has been broken because a very clever entrepreneurial project called Lido is offering staking derivatives. So what you do is Lido is a protocol, not exactly sure how it works, but essentially what it does is you can stake less than 32 Ethereum with Lido. They basically take custody of a lot of people's Ethereum and they combine it all together into 32 Ethereum chunks. And then they start staking these chunks and they get some returns. I think the return is around 4%. Okay, so if you run your own validator, you'll get a 4.4% return on your Ethereum, which is inflation, by the way. This is an inflationary system. So Ethereum's inflating at 4.4% per year. And if you run a validator, you get 4.4%. But if you do it with Lido, they're going to take 0.4%. So why would you do that? Well, one, if you don't have 32 Ethereum, then you need to use a service like Lido to be able to stake. And two, Lido gives you another token. Oh, mm-hmm. a derivative. It's called STETH. Steph, maybe? I wonder if they call it Steph. Yeah, I would. That's how I'd say it. Or stealth. I just add an L to make it sound fun. Stealth. I mean, is that going to confuse <laughs> no, everybody? No, it's just I, I, S-T-E-T. I don't know. It's oh, it's another one of these. Saint ETH? It's one of these, yeah. It's one of these weird Ethereum derivatives. Okay. There's so many of these things. And you can stake this STETH ETH in certain DeFi protocols like Curve for around 5%. So yeah. you can get 4% on your Ethereum and then take this derivative token and then stake it for 6%. I mean, wow, that's great. Right now you're making nine percent. Nine percent. You're cooking with gas. I mean, so essentially, the end of this story is that Chris and the Bitcoin Dad are sitting over in foggy, dodgy Bitcoin land, and we're just jealous of all the fun and money the Ethereum community is is having. Right? So jealous. So so jealous. There's nothing more here, right? This story and stories like this are what have changed my mind completely on proof of stake. When this show started, I was kind of fence riding because I was like, well, I can really see the ESG environmental narrative is really, really crushing innovation and things aren't even getting off the ground now unless they have a green story. I could see, okay, that is really driving a need for proof of staking because you're not burning electricity to mine. It just, it's whatever the cost to run the infrastructure. And I, I could see the advantage too of like, you know, 
staking some some cryptocurrency during a down market and making a 9% return while the rest of the market's completely crashing for maybe the next year, I could see the advantage to that. So I'm, I, was, I was open to the idea when this show started that perhaps there was some merit to proof of stake. But I'll tell you what has absolutely murdered it in the crib for me is the inherent centralization that's not only begun, but is going to take off like a wildfire when places like Coinbase really get into staking. And you've got every, every Joe and Sally who is staking their 0.5 ETH and their 1 ETH on Coinbase. And Coinbase essentially just becomes one of the largest staking locations overnight and becomes essentially a primary player in the consensus of the Ethereum network, which is just going to get abused by the state. And this has already happened with Lido. So Lido is now staking around 88% of the ETH to liquidity staking balance. 88%. 88. Before it's even switched over to staking. As exactly. It's- do you know how much you need to do an attack on the Bitcoin mining network? You need at least 51% of hash rate. And then it's not, it's a very limited attack. It's not even, you're not able to like rewrite the history or anything. You just can kind of screw up transactions for a little bit. It's kind of analogous to the Visa network being down for a couple hours, I would say. Yeah, it's tenuous at best because if anyone else ramps up uh, mining, and, you know, and builds it, the blockchain first, it has the longest block, then everything you've done is just lost. And it has a real cost because to do that, you need, I think, conservatively $20 billion of mining hardware. You, you just, in this day and age with supply chain and, and what it is, it, it would be impossible to build a mechanism, to build a machine. Even if you just turned all of AWS into a Bitcoin battling uh, machine, it wouldn't be enough horsepower. It just, it's an unbelievable amount of horsepower required. So essentially, the 51% proof of work attack on Bitcoin used to be possible before China banned Bitcoin mining. So China actually, by banning Bitcoin mining, removed the centralization of hash rate in China to the point where the Bitcoin network got so much more secure. It's just, it's the most beautiful foot gun shooting yourself in a sensitive place I've ever seen in the history of modern politics. And they wiped out a nice uh, chunk of FUD in doing it too, because some of the FUD used to be, well, China has an uncomfortable amount of control and could really put the screws to Bitcoin. And there was some coal power in their energy mix. So they actually increased the green energy portion of the Bitcoin security (laughs) energy mix. So they just helped everybody except the Chinese Communist Party on that one. Well, and long, long term, they may have helped incentivize a ton of renewable development in the United States. Think about that. China kicking the Bitcoin miners out may have subsidized a decade worth of renewable investments. In North America, yeah, that, that flare gas mining, the hydro mining, all that stuff. A lot of hydro mining up in Canada. You know what I learned recently is that 60% of the energy that is generated, of, of the electricity, I realize I need to, there's a difference. 60% of the electricity generated for the U.S. goes wasted. 60% because of the way they have to build up enough capacity of surplus capacity. Yeah, because you can't store electricity. Right. So you just have to kind of blast it out and guess how much people are using and always produce more so that no one complains. So anyways, this is an interesting difference here because before Ethereum has even made the transition to proof of stake as their consensus mechanism, we see a third party that has an 80% share. Now, I would actually... 90%. No, wow, okay, 90. I would actually expect this to, to spread out a bit once more of the exchanges get into this, but it's not going to be a good thing. It's just going to be more places that people can put pressure on. It's not going to be amongst thousands of thousands and thousands of individual users because the price point is so high. Yeah. And all of these staking pools, 
these are financial institutions. They are regulated. So now it's super easy for any government with any of these mining pools in their borders or you know, tracking down the founders who have you know, master keys to these protocols. They can now pressure them to censor Ethereum, change the consensus algorithm. I mean, I think that this kind of demonstrates that calling a proof-of-stake system a decentralized protocol is a joke. It's decentralized compared to a bank, but it's not decentralized compared to Bitcoin. And I'm not expecting people to get this. People will understand this when the attack happens, and then they'll throw their hands in the air and they'll say, who could have known? Who could have known this would happen? Who could have known that centralizing our consensus into a couple large actors that were easily easy prey for government regulators would have resulted in us getting regulated? Who, who could have thought? Yeah. And it also strikes me that the sort of panic reaction of moving over to proof of stake as a result of environmental narratives and pressure to, we may look back at this and go, you know, we didn't even have the entire technology figured out. We hadn't even wrapped our brains around it before we decided we were going to throw out proof of work and go proof of stake. Because what we're realizing as time goes on is that proof of work has so many benefits outside of just the security model. And you got to imagine like 10 years down the road, it's going to be so clear that proof of stake is, it's great for centralized cryptocurrencies that are going to be controlled by some corporate backers, but for a decentralized community asset, just not there. And it means it's not as good of a long-term store of value potentially than something like Bitcoin. Excellent lead in. Because my next story, which actually comes from the same blog, really cool blog, it's called Surebits. SureSats.com? There's a nice little blog post here, which is my favorite type of point, that is a pedantic one, that Bitcoin is not a store of value because a store of value has a stable value. So gold is a store of value. Its value is relatively stable and it kind of moves up with inflation. Bitcoin outperforms inflation. So I've heard Fidelity Digital Assets called inflation a speculative store of value in, I want to say, 2019. Meaning, if you look at the fundamentals, Bitcoin is obviously going to be a store of value, but it's not yet because not everyone gets it yet. So a speculative or an aspirational store of value. I think that's a fair way to say it. I think, you know, it's a nascent asset. And so it is sort of a riskier proposition right now, but the reward is also higher when you're willing to take that risk. And I think that one important detail for taking advantage of Bitcoin's potential use as a store of value is you must hold it yourself. If you hold it with a third party, it's a speculative financial asset, simply because if it gets really valuable, you're not going to be allowed to withdraw it. If it gets super valuable, if it's as useful and cool as Chris and I think it is, then if you have a Bitcoin fortune on Coinbase, by the time it's a fortune, you will not be allowed to take it out. <laughs> or if you do, you'll have to pay your taxes up front and so you'll get a fraction of it or something. Mm, I could see that. Totally. Yeah, this is a tricky thing because it, for something, I mean, if you think in some respects, 14 years is a blink of an eye in the history of humanity and the things that we think are of value. Um, just a 14 years is just a blink of the eye. And so it would make sense that something like this would take a minimum of 20 years for people to really start wrapping their head around some general, some generational change out in there. You know, all kinds of things have to happen. And the key, and the key point that the author makes here is, you know, a true store of value doesn't have the risk that in a few days the price could drop completely to, you know, nothing. And as long as that risk is 
present, you can't really call it a store of value. Not yet. Agreed. And we're just bringing that up because you want to have the right understanding of it if you're going to get into it or if you're going to talk about it with people you know. Because if you say Bitcoin is a store of value and then your dad buys some and it goes down by 50% and then he sells it and he's taken a huge loss, he's going to be very salty and it, it won't have helped him. So I think it would have been better if you'd said, I think it's going to be probably stable in the future, but in the in the moment, it's very volatile. Though I, you know, I think it's getting more useful every day. So it's probably going to be reflected in the price. Yeah. What I tell people too is if you're buying Bitcoin, only buy Bitcoin if you're planning to hold it for four to five years, right? Because historically, if you hold Bitcoin for four years, you're going to make money. That's that's the history of it so far. Um, and I think that's a fair thing to say right now because we have massive macroeconomic conditions that are going to put downward price pressure on Bitcoin because Bitcoin is currently traded as a tech stock. And when the market tumbles, tech stocks tumble. But we've got a couple of really positive things around the corner that typically affect Bitcoin's price. Number one is the halvings coming in 2024. There's going to be half as many Bitcoin produced for miners, which is going to drive their operational costs up, which is going to drive the price up. The other thing that's coming just around the corner, the Biden administration has already kicked it off, is regulation in the United States, which is going to open up all kinds of traditional financial industry money to digital assets. And when you combine that with the halvening, you have to imagine long term, just in the United States alone, Bitcoin's price action is going to be pretty positive. But in the short term, there's a lot of macro risks. They're going to drive that price down. So if you're recommending Bitcoin to people right now, you got to be telling them with sort of like the full picture that this is a four to five year investment right now. It's not a buy some today and cash out in six month investment like it has been sometimes. Yeah. And what's different is in the past when you recommended some stock that had a four to five year payout, you bought it and you held it. People knew that. But with Bitcoin, it also is the the fuel that goes into all sorts of interesting technologies like podcasting 2.0 or lightning network payments. So it can be complicated trying to understand what it is and how to think about it. So we just want to bring up this idea that it's not yet a store of value in the way that the price action just doesn't reflect what a store of value does. So always try to have the right idea of what you're dealing with so you don't get surprised or emotional. You imagine long term as the market begins to understand what it is, as regulation is introduced. And if the United States introduces sane regulation, you have to imagine a lot of the West will follow suit, perhaps a lot of the world. And as regulation kind of gets normalized and we've absorbed the downsides that will unlikely bring us as a community as well, but we've normalized all of it, those kinds of milestones are probably going to start contributing to price stability. And then as the price starts getting up higher and higher, you know, a drawdown of 20, 30% means that maybe we go from 300,000 to like, you know, 180, 200,000, right? There's, we're still talking massive numbers. And so perhaps we'll have a different view of volatility as well, because right now, if it's at 60,000 and it drops down to 40, we're like, oh my God, that's a massive drop. But if it's at 200,000 and it drops to 140, it's still a lot of money. Yeah, I don't know how to think about that. I wonder if sane legislation in the US will lead to sane le legislation in Europe. I suspect it won't because I was thinking about how the European Union seems very fragile. And I think the idea of having multiple independent countries that are sort of stuck together by an unelected bureaucracy and all using the same currency, but they don't control the currency. So they have to have group monetary policy, but separate fiscal policy. It's very messy. It's, it's weird. And it means that Italy is kind of always in a state of chaos and recession and the Germans don't want to bail out the Italian pension system. And so there are all, all of these internal divisions. And I think 
that the euro is sort of, I wonder if it's the glue that holds Europe together. So I imagine that Europe will be always consistently more hostile to Bitcoin than the US, even though the dollar is the world's reserve currency and you have people like Congressional Representative Brad Sherman saying that we need to ban Bitcoin to protect the dollar as the ultimate economic weapon, which is a scary thing to say, Brad. No one wants to hear that. He's saying the quiet part out loud there. <laughs> yeah. You were supposed to just nod about that dollar being a financial weapon of mass destruction if, if need be. So I wonder if, if Europe will, will ever have sane regulation. I follow you. It, it, they are very much entrenched and they feel very established. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Our next story is the story that's beginning, but we can't really say anything more. And this is that the Central African Republic, which is one of the world's poorest countries with only 11% internet penetration, has adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. There is a bit of a double talk going on because the finance minister initially denied that this was happening and then the president said that it was and then they released a, a PDF that's been floating around. So I don't think there's a lot to this story, but it's interesting. El Salvador is also a very poor country. I think that the thesis was that Bitcoin adoption would begin at the periphery and move inwards. I can't really say any more. Yeah, there's not much more to say at this point. I think the countries that were going to be most impacted by the inflation in the West are likely going to want to make these kind of changes first. It's also going to happen in countries where perhaps the leaders have a little more unilateral authority to make wild decisions like this. Dictatorship. Yeah, because a common thread is some part of the inner government was fighting this until the very last minute, until the dictator just says, this is what we're doing, get on board. But you always see the lower levels of the bureaucracy are always resistant. And so it, I guess it makes sense that it's these countries that adopt it first. And we'll just have to keep our eye on it and see how it develops. Because like you just touched on, the internet penetration there is very, very, very poor. So they're going to have to solve multiple problems at once. They're going to have to get infrastructure. They have to get devices. They have to train people. To say it's an uphill adoption is putting it mildly. Yeah, and I don't think this is a country known for ever deploying large-scale public works or public projects. I think there's very limited infrastructure there. So who knows? So much has gone wrong in, in the Central African Republic that it's hard to imagine things going more wrong, I think, in, in some sense. But um, we'll see what develops there. And our next point is actually from Stacker News, which you recommended last oh, yeah. episode. Right. I've been checking it out. Yeah. And there's an interesting article on Bitcoin adoption in El Salvador, which actually comes from the Yale University uh, researcher, uh, Diana Van Patten. There, well, there are f three main writers from Penn State, UChicago, and Yale. So, you know, prestigious institutions. And I think the conclusion of the paper is essentially, it's a mixed bag. There doesn't seem to be massive adoption of Bitcoin among smaller companies. Some larger companies have complied with the Bitcoin law more fully, probably because they had the resources to. And the Chiva wallet doesn't seem to be super popular. I don't think it's possible to get as many metrics on non-Chivo wallet options. Chivo wallet, of course, is the El Salvadorian centralized government Bitcoin wallet, and it's been plagued by bugs and other poor implementation problems. So it certainly hasn't been an ideal rollout in El Salvador, but based on this paper, it certainly isn't a complete failure. And there's always, you know, time will tell how adoption goes in El Salvador and if people find value in using Bitcoin. 
Right. The uh, Chivo wallet is a good thing to examine. And it's just a great example of how these governments that have never done this before, they don't really know how to build infrastructure. It's harder to build infrastructure than than people realize. And they <laughs> they did things like they incentivized people to use the Chivo wallet by adding $30 of worth of Bitcoin in there. And you had some places that were so nervous about Bitcoin that they would only accept payments from the Chivo wallet. I've watched several documentaries and YouTube's just general YouTube channels that go down there and film like here's my weekend in El Salvador and it's a bit of a mixed bag you know some shops have tried it and they've had issues and now they're refusing to accept Bitcoin while other places are having success I think the story the aspect that resonated the most for me when I was watching these documentaries is the citizens who have chosen to adopt it have a couple of really common things happen number one they've got a lot more time back in their day because they're not getting on the bus going down to the utility company paying their utilities in person with cash, and then getting back on the bus and traveling home and burning two hours in that process. That used to be, uh, I was watching a documentary and this guy just goes through his rituals. Like this day I go to the power company, this day I go to the bank. You know, he has all these things that he has to do because he had no way of doing it online. And now he switched to Bitcoin and he pays those bills instantly with Bitcoin from his living room using, using a smartphone. And for that, it's just changed his life. He has so much more time now. That kind of stuff is massive. But the other thing that was a really common thread for the people that are really getting into it is it's changed their time preference. They think about money differently. And I don't mean to make this sound insulting, but they had a very kind of simplistic view of because of inflation and whatnot, I get money and I spend money as fast as possible because if I don't buy it today, it's going to be at, at a different price or I something. That's not simplistic. That's the reality of living under high inflation. And our listeners in the United States and Europe are going to be there. <laughs> yeah, you're there right now. Right. So you're going to find yourself wanting to keep lower cash balances mm -hmm. because every day, every week you go to the grocery store, your bill is going to be higher than the week before. So if you need to buy mustard, buy mustard for the whole year. I think um, I recall reading that towards the end of the inflationary bout in the 70s in the United States, there was some there was an economics professor who said, if you want to make great returns, buy toothpaste. Like your toothpaste is going to double in price in the next year. Like you're not going to find returns like that in financial markets. So just buy household goods. And uh, these, these individuals are now uh, saving a bit of their money in Bitcoin because they have a place they can put it that A, is just a little bit trickier to get to, and, and B, has a different rate of inflation, you know, it's impacted by inflation completely differently. And the one that really stands out to me is this guy was saying how he'd never had more than, after he'd paid his bills, he never held more than 20 US dollars. That's all he had like at the end of the month was $20. And now he has $700 saved up. It changed the way he thinks about money. And it wasn't just him. It was several people that were interviewed in these different in, the, in these different documentaries. It changes the way they think about value and long-term planning. So there's that aspect of it as well. So where it has been adopted, I think it's been extremely beneficial. And where it hasn't been adopted, I think it's really a lack of education and infrastructure. I agree with you. At the same time, our critics will say, yeah, you're taking the rosy view and ignoring the problems that it's hard to use. There are fees for transactions and whatnot. And that's you know, also true. All of these things can be true I don't simultaneously. I don't necessarily dismiss that point, but that point is very limited. Where they have problems now, where the technology doesn't work, is solvable. It's solvable with software updates, right? The back end is all solid. It's like the, the apps aren't working right, or you know maybe their cameras are totally crap, so they can't scan the QR codes. But that's all solvable problem. That's a good point. And I guess... I want to respond to myself here and say there's this assumption that using 
the banking system and applying for credit cards and all of this stuff is easy. And it is easy for certain privileged people. For other people who aren't in groups that get bank accounts and have all the right documentation and the right credit history to get a credit card, it's very difficult to get these things. And if for you, getting a credit card and a bank account is no big deal, then I don't think you'll necessarily ever sympathize with people who can't until you encounter them in your own life. And I actually ran into this problem because I have a relative who emigrated from a different country and they could not get a bank account. They went to all the major banks and they were just said, you don't have a credit history and we can't give you a bank account. And I think that a lot of people my age and older would be very surprised to hear that because it was so easy to open bank accounts 20 or 30 years ago. But the fact is, because the financial system has changed, I think mainly due to financial repression, banks now have a kind of a different model for monetizing customers, and they actually have to take more risk. And so they're much more concerned about the quote-unquote riskiness of their customers. They also have to do much more financial surveillance on their customers. You know, basically, most people who earn not a lot of money are just not worth you know, your bank's time. And so if you, they don't already have an account, they're not going to get an account. And so we're actually going through a period of traditional finance deplatforming, and Bitcoin sort of exists as a response to that. Yeah. And to your point, 70% of the respondents that were participating in this research paper, 70% of those people in El Salvador were completely unbanked. 90% of them do not use any form of mobile banking. When they do use banking, they would traditionally physically go to the bank. 90% of them. And 70% of the population, 70%, and this is a recent survey, didn't have bank accounts. So when we talk about, you know, the value that Bitcoin adds to this society, you have to consider the fact that they now have banks on their phones, those who choose to participate. And that is, uh, over the long haul, if they can stick with this, that's going to raise the quality of life for so many of them. And maybe the Chivo wallet sucks, but the nice thing is that it doesn't have to be used. You don't have to use the Chivo wallet. You could use Strike, for example. And that, that has its kinks worked out. Strike's sure. a solid app. I mean, there are other mobile Bitcoin wallets, too. Yeah. I don't know if we're recommending Breeze Wallet anymore after Kraftnix revealed that it was using 300 gigabytes yeah. on his phone. That. That's a weird off use case, though, because I've got Breeze on my phone and it does not use that much space. Okay. <laughs> I, don't know what you, I don't know what happened there, though. And yeah, that was funny. This is community news from the JB Matrix channel. You could check that out at colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com. Some good Matrix channels in there, one for discussion and just one for questions. If, if you're feeling kind of like you want to figure out this stuff and would like to do it in a real-time chat, we've got two rooms over there. Yeah, people are very friendly. Now, there's another little side story. Fort Worth has announced plans to mine Bitcoin in their city hall. They received a donation of a couple ASICs from the Texas Blockchain Council. Whenever I hear blockchain and council, I, my hackles go up, but... <laughs> I think it's kind of a Bitcoin-focused, Texas-focused lobbying group. Yeah, um, they mostly focus on trying to set the record straight about energy usage. And so these different councils are coming together to generate cooperative documentation amongst various private mining companies. So that way the data is publicly available to kind of push back against some of the ESG FUD and to help places like the city of Fort Worth figure out if it's actually a, a solid investment or not. And so, you know, they grease the wheels here by donating these uh, ASIC miners. And they're not super powerful ASIC miners. They're a couple of generations old. But the mentality shift for the mayor is really interesting to watch. When you read this piece, what you, what you realize is that she's thinking three steps ahead. She's 
she's thinking we're going to make ourselves Bitcoin mining friendly by actually Bitcoin mining in the city hall. And if you think about like when you're thinking when you're a when you're a large Bitcoin business now and you're looking at employing 100 people and you want and you want to set up a couple of these mining farms. And so you're maybe looking at four or five hundred people you're going to be employing. You're going to be generating serious tax revenue. You're going to be renting a space and you're looking at your different options. Texas is looking more and more friendly because they'll hook you up with some renewables if you want or you can just pay for the traditional stuff if that's how you want to go and hey look at this look at this Fort Worth city this Dallas Fort Worth area is great and they're mining bitcoin they are obviously friendly to our industry and they understand a little bit about the mining ecosystem and how it works so they might be easier to work with i imagine and they're going to add that bitcoin that they mine to their balance sheet as an asset uh, which a lot of mining companies are doing and so i think they're just really positioning themselves to try to appeal to that industry. I think they see it as a jobs industry. And uh, Fort Worth is a growing city like crazy. I've, I don't know if you've ever spent time down there, but it is just exploding. And uh, this pilot, the idea is, is to run for six months to then get an idea of how it went for them and then decide if they want to invest in a larger mining operation or what they're going to do there. And uh, I think they're hoping for a Bitcoin boom in the Texas area. Yeah, Texas is certainly booming. I have to say, as someone who thinks climate change is a serious issue, I wonder about the long-term outcome of building so much infrastructure in the desert that's already very hot. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? But, uh, you know, people seem to really like Texas. So um, the thing is, is that the Bitcoin data centers, let's just call them what they are, they're data centers, right? They have a couple of unique properties from traditional data centers. Um, they can handle higher temperatures because they don't have like storage and the other subcomponents that servers have that don't handle heat very well. Like they can't roast, but you can run them hotter than a traditional server. They've also gone all in on immersion mining. Yeah, heard, liquid uh, cooling. Sorry, yeah, liquid cooling. So it's like the machines themselves are su submerged in these liquid baths. Oil. Mm -hmm. Oh, oil. Yeah, okay. it's, it's an oil, but yeah. So it's like a, because I've heard it, the term dielectric fluid. Yeah. Um, or mineral oil, like anything that doesn't transmit electricity, right? So it's non-conductive. But and it transmits heat very heat. efficiently. And yeah. I guess also like you're not going to get maybe dust as much building up because right. the oil if is they're sealed. cleaning, like th like flowing through. And and then you can cool the oil in a centrally, you know, like, like, in, like a water cooling system. But the other thing that the Bitcoin mining operations do that, you know, is very unique from, say, something like AWS, which you, you consumes a ton of power, too. You can turn the miners off in seconds. Doesn't hurt them. You know, Netflix doesn't go down. The uh, police services, 911 services don't go down. The network just continues on. Yeah, that, th those miners aren't making any money for that period of time. But also the way their power deals work, when they shut down, they get to sell that power back. So they actually make a little bit of money still. And then they can turn back on in two seconds. And so if the grid down in Texas needs more power for AC, they are setting up the way these business arrangements work is the power company can actually flip their breaker on their own. So they don't even have to ask them to turn off if they don't want. The power company has the ability, and I'm getting, I'm getting the terminology wrong, but it's essentially a breaker that they flip remotely. And it just shuts the miners off and that power is available to the grid. And then when the grid has excess power, they flip the breaker back on and the miners resume. And so this is also something they're doing when the thermal loads are really high too. Wow. So this is actually like a partnership between the mining data center, which is a large consumer of electricity, and the power producer or the grid that's distributing the power because they get to build out extra capacity in their grid that they can pay for because they're getting paid for that power. And then 
if there's some sort of volatility in power demand, there are these huge swaths of the grid they can just turn off and no one's going to write a letter to their congressman and get the you know grid manager fired. Right. And because the Bitcoin network is decentralized, the Bitcoin network doesn't even care. Doesn't, services stay up. Everybody's transactions still get processed. It's a freaking thing of beauty. And it's a real unique. That's why when people say Bitcoin mining is a unique consumer of energy, that's what they're talking about is this kind of flexibility that you don't get with traditional data centers. Pretty cool. Might be an episode title. Bitcoin doesn't care. <laughs> Bitcoin don't care. It just don't care. Turn it on, turn it off. But he might care about BIP 119. The Bitcoin improvement proposal that's really been rather controversial since Bitcoin 2022, although it's been around for a while, but it seems like the conversation around BIP 119 has kicked up a notch. BIP 119 is, an, is a proposal to improve Bitcoin by developer Jeremy Rubin, and it adds a new opcode, which is essentially a function in the Bitcoin scripting language called op template verify. Now, I think we should roll back and talk about how is Bitcoin improved? It's an open source project. So how do you go about making changes? That is a very complicated question. So the process probably begins with a Bitcoin improvement proposal, but it goes beyond just a technical write-up. There is a social aspect. You have to socialize the change. You have to get people on board because, and maybe you could go into detail here, the way you get an actual change to Bitcoin rolled out involves a lot of different independent parties who don't necessarily share the same incentive. And it's completely different than contributing to other software projects. Like, for instance, I've made two contributions to Bitcoin-related projects, one to a wallet, one to a Lightning implementation. And I just saw something that was wrong, wrote up a solution, and clicked pull request. And then I described what I was doing. And then the developers of those projects, they said, oh, yeah, sure, we'll just merge that. Or, or someone else said, oh, can you do these couple things? And I did. And then they merged it. So it was a very simple process. But obviously, Bitcoin is a financial system as well as a software project. I mean, there's real money riding on this thing. In a sense, I think that the Bitcoin development process is going through the transition of Bitcoin being this tiny, small community where people generally agreed with everybody, to Bitcoin now being this big tent, this huge community with little factions, and we definitely don't agree on everything. And that's also why we have this podcast, because this is a podcast for people who've been around, but also for, for the new cohort of Bitcoiners who want to get up to speed and are maybe bringing new ideas and concerns in. And I think one of the reasons why my podcast and this podcast that you've done have strived for accuracy and explaining things is because podcasts can play a role in that social consensus generation, which is, is an important layer here. Right. If we come out very strong, we may be helping to shape the consensus around this change. So it's important for us to take a pretty balanced view on what it does, what the risks are, and talk about it in the context of where Bitcoin is today and where it might be in the future, I think. But if you've ever wondered, how does something new get introduced to Bitcoin? How does a change happen? Well, we get to watch this live. If successful or not, you're going to get to see the process play out with BIP 119, because this is one that a lot of people have an opinion on especially some long timers. They, they've been putting out their opinions recently on YouTube and on their blogs and on Twitter, you know, it, because anything that involves changing Bitcoin is going to get a lot of attention. Anything that involves changing Bitcoin sort of this low down 
is going to get a lot of attention. Right. So let's just talk about the process to get a BIP out in the open. The, the first step is to create a technical write-up called a BIP, and you get a BIP number. And I think the list of BIPs is actually maintained by Luke Dasher, the Bitcoin core developer who also has his own Bitcoin implementation called Bitcoin Knots, which is BSD-based. So all of you BSD fans out there, Knots is for you. Once you have a BIP, now you have to get people to consider it. And so this involves going to conferences and talking about your BIP and talking about the benefits and risks. And I think Jeremy's done this pretty well. He was at Bitcoin 2022 talking about it. And you also will get into conversations on the Bitcoin mailing list, which is interestingly enough, I think the Bitcoin mailing list comes from the Linux Foundation or is maintained by the Linux Foundation. Yeah, that sounds right. Mm -hmm. And so... On the mailing list, people have very lively conversations. I mean, including personal attacks. Like the Bitcoin mailing list is kind of like Twitter, but for nerds who write long, very detailed emails. So in between going after someone's character and how much you hate their guts, there'll be like a very clever and thoughtful technical breakdown of some, some point. It reminds me of the uh, earlier years of the Linux kernel mailing list. Oh my gosh, I remember reading that takedown of that System D developer that <laughs> Linus did. Yeah. It was so brutal. And I think many people's views on System D were basically formed by that very nasty email, which, but it's totally changed now. I mean, I think System D is pretty impressive. Yeah, that's true. It, it's funny how those things can be so controversial. And then a few years after they've been implemented, it's totally fine. Now that we have an idea around how you get a BIP out there, now comes the mystery. And the mystery is what is consensus? How do we know what consensus is for a change, a code change to be merged into the next release of Bitcoin Core? And frankly, no one knows because this process is not documented. There's not a series of checkpoints you have to pass through. And I think part of that is previously Bitcoin was a small community. First, we had Satoshi as a benevolent dictator who just merged things if he thought it was a good idea. And then he passed that on to Gavin Andreessen. And then by the time Gavin Andreessen was ready to start merging things, Bitcoin was already too large a project to accept a, a dictator. And Gavin was forced out because that Gavin came down on the side of big blocks which was a wrong decision. And I think we've poked Gavin for that in the past, so no need to revisit that. But Gavin was forced out, and now basically there are five Bitcoin Core maintainers. So five people, I'm not going to say their names because I don't, I don't think they like being called out either. They, they view the role as a maintainer as sort of a janitorial role. They're serious developers, they know what they're doing, but they're not the, the kings and queens of Bitcoin. They just have the right to merge code into the Bitcoin Core repository. And you might say, okay, well then they're in charge. No, no they're not, because you can fork the whole repository. Like we can fork it and have a whole copy of the code and change it anyway. And so if they screw up, somehow, magically, what they're managing will stop being Bitcoin and Bitcoin will be a new thing that we will come to consensus on. And so the process of consensus is kind of vague because Bitcoin used to have a smaller community that was maybe more tightly knit. But also, if you create a static approval process, it's going to get gamed. And so I think that keeping it vague has kind of been a security mechanism against people gaming the system. And it also slows the rate of change a bit. You know, if you have a codified process and if you follow these processes and you, you reach each one of these milestones, you're going to have changes that just sort of have a pipeline to come down where we don't have that now. And so 
in a way, it's probably helped Bitcoin not change as much, which has helped people have more confidence in it. And there's many reasons to be cautious around changes to Bitcoin. This is a very complex piece of software. It, it relies on an interaction of software and human incentives. I mean, that's a very complicated space right there. So it could be possible to unintentionally add a couple small things that when you put them together, you've changed Bitcoin in a very unpredictable way. And I think that's a concern that many people have. Now, what exactly is BIP119? Jeremy has a website called utxos.org where he has some simple explanations of this opcode change, this new function to put into the Bitcoin scripting language. And he also has some example code running on the Bitcoin testnet. You can essentially use this opcode to take Bitcoin and send it into a new address. Depending on how you use this opcode, you can do different things with the Bitcoin in this address. So the first use case that is the most obvious for BIP119, OpCTV, Op Check Template Verify, is you can create something called a vault. Now, a vault is a form of limited covenant. A covenant is a type of encumbrance that you can put onto a UTXO. And traditionally, Bitcoiners have been very concerned that covenants could be an attack vector into Bitcoin because it's a way of, of basically breaking fungibility and of limiting a Bitcoin forever. And so permanent covenants are kind of scary, but op check template verify is not a permanent covenant. It's a, I think it, it basically can last for one transaction essentially. So it's a limited covenant, but you could theoretically, if there were changes down the line, combine it into more permanent covenants. And so a covenant is a limitation on some Bitcoin. Now, why would you want that? Well, a vault is a good example. A vault would be a special type of Bitcoin transaction where essentially you could imagine it as an ultra secure cold storage. So in addition to your cold storage multisig, where you send Bitcoin to a wallet that has three different or five different private keys and you need a quorum of a majority of them to sign to take Bitcoin out. In addition to that, if someone stole those private keys and made a transaction to themselves, OpCTV in this vault function would enable you to maybe claw those Bitcoin back. So maybe there would be a cooling off period where the Bitcoin had to go to this one address that you also controlled and you could take it back if, uh, if you noticed that transaction, and then it could be spent normally. So the vault is a kind of limited covenant, and my understanding is that exchanges are very interested in this, and also private individuals who have a bunch of Bitcoin, they would feel much safer if they could put their holdings into a vault, and then they wouldn't worry so much like, oh, is someone stealing my private keys? So I think that could be a cool use case. Yeah, and I could see where the concern there is too, right? Uh, you could see these covenants potentially being used to limit the way certain Bitcoin could be spent. I think the nightmare fuel scenario would be some sort of nationwide covenant. These are, you know, these coins can only be spent in this nation. Um, and, and the way they would enforce that perhaps is by getting all of the exchanges on board that are state regulated. And so, you know, KY, not only do we have KYC, but you also are agreeing to the covenant rules of the exchange when you join that exchange. And then you buy your Bitcoin from that exchange and you are automatically a part of a covenant that says you can only spend it in the United States or you can't send it to Iran. Right. So when you withdraw from Coinbase, 
they would automatically send it into a covenant transaction. And now maybe you could hold your Bitcoin in your wallet, but if you wanted to send it to another wallet, maybe it would also have to get a signature from the U.S. government wallet or something. Obviously, that's not, like I said, that's a nightmare scenario, but, and it, it may be something that never materializes, but it seems like we are adding that potential capability, although it may require additional code, but we're adding something that could allow or enable that that didn't exist before. Right. And maybe a counter argument to that would be, look, Bitcoin has a pretty limited scripting language, so we don't know what will happen when we add a covenant to it. But Ethereum has a Turing complete programming language built in, and that hasn't happened to Ethereum yet. At the same time, Ethereum's smaller than Bitcoin, and both Bitcoin and Ethereum are tiny compared to where Bitcoin's going to be in the future, because clearly the world needs Bitcoin. So I think that concern around a potential attack vector is very valid, and I'd like to see more research and more reassurances that this isn't a likely scenario or there are ways to potentially break a covenant or limit covenants somehow, maybe. But it seems like the features that BIP-119 wants to bring, all of it's sort of fundamentally based around this covenant idea. The different kind of pooling it can do to help reduce the amount of blockchain transactions and reduce fees, the capabilities it can bring to the Lightning Network that are clearly seem like an advantage, especially for larger, even like a higher scale Lightning Network that has even more transactions. It almost seems like BIP-119 might be necessary to get to where, you, where you'd actually want to take things. So it, I'm really personally torn on this because it's potentially creating our own worst nightmare one day, but yet it's adding features that I suspect if we were building Bitcoin today would almost be built in just because it's programmable money and this makes it more programmable. Now, let me jump in and explain why this still might be a good idea, even though we've described something terrifying. So when Chris mentioned that you can do sort of payment pool type things with this CTV opcode, what he's describing is currently normal Bitcoin transactions happen with one wallet controlling one UTXO. So my wallet might have one private key and it controls one UTXO, which might be one Bitcoin or 0.01 Bitcoins, and no other wallet controls that UTXO. No one else controls it. Now, when I open a Lightning channel with Chris, what I'm doing is I'm taking my UTXO and I'm sending it into a two of two multi-sig. So I'm sending it into an address that both Chris and I control. But Lightning does this clever thing with pre-signed withdrawal transactions so that essentially Chris and I are now sort of sharing that UTXO. And that enables us to basically send small amounts of Bitcoin back and forth forever. So, so Lightning is really good for two parties that do a lot of business together, but they don't really trust each other. Now with OpCTV, it's possible that we could have UTXOs that are controlled by an arbitrary number of people. Now, that's really, really important because there is not enough block space for every human on planet Earth to have a UTXO. There just isn't. You can do the math, and if everyone on the planet lined up for transactions to get UTXOs, the mempool would never clear, fees would be sky high, Bitcoin would essentially break under that demand. So this is a way to have hundreds, thousands of people potentially sharing a UTXO, opening a lightning channels with that UTXO. And now instead of a lightning channel taking two on-chain transactions, one to open, one to close, if that lightning channel, if that one on-chain transaction to open opens a hundred or a thousand lightning channels, all controlled by different people, all interconnected, 
because now that multiple people control the UTXO, the channel isn't this just visual line between two nodes. It's this weird multidimensional shape that's now connecting, who knows, a thousand nodes. I mean, I don't even know what you call that shape. We probably can't even visualize it, but I imagine it has the potential to enhance the effectiveness of lightning because now I can share a balance with all of these nodes and people and I don't have to do a lot of on-chain transactions. So that seems like a really powerful potential scaling technology, but it's still early days. No one's built that functionality yet. So It's interesting though to see uh, this rollout with lightning now being a thing and so seeing some decisions that could be made to core Bitcoin to scale or, or supercharge lightning as they put it. Um, yeah, this is it's a beyond. This is a decision beyond my pay grade. I'm glad I don't have to make this. Um, but I am watching members of the community kind of line up and make their, you know, plant their flag. I'm not upgrading my system. I won't be supporting this. And others saying we need it now to keep Bitcoin competitive. So from a observational standpoint, I find this fascinating to watch. Do you have a sense? Is this a is this going to uh, be if you were you know going to maybe. Bet a couple of Satoshis on it. Is this going to proceed? You have a sense of it? So if we were betting a small number of Satoshis, I'll definitely take the over because I'm optimistic. I like to keep an optimistic worldview. But if we were betting serious money, I'd take the under. Really? Yeah, because I just think there's a lot of resistance to change and fear around change, to be honest. And you can see that in Matt Corallo's response, which was on the Bitcoin mailing list. He just wants more time. You can see that in Andreas Antonopoulos issuing a video where he basically says that trying to go forward with this proposal at this point is too fast, it's too reckless, which is sort of funny because, I mean, he wrote a book about Ethereum, so he should know a thing or two about reckless. <laughs> also, Bit119 has been around for a minute. It's not like it's not like it just came out. But and, at the speed of Bitcoin, I suppose it's still soon. And I think that that's also part of the problem because Jeremy's a, maybe he's no longer a young man. I mean, he's still, he's sort of kind of our age, maybe. And he's been working on Bitcoin for a while. This idea has been floating in the wild. And it's not necessarily a bad idea, but you kind of have to make the community pick a, pick a side on this. And no one's wanted to for a while. So what he's doing is he's proposing a speedy trial activation. So what Speedy Trial does is you release a client for miners to run, and the miners can signal if they accept the soft fork. And there's a period of time, I think it's 2,000 blocks or something, and it's this rolling period of 2,000 blocks. So 2,000 blocks, 2,000 time times 10 minutes. What's that in days? Mm, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I have no idea. This is news to me. I didn't know it worked like this. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this was how Taproot was okay, put in. Okay, okay. So it's essentially a way for the miners to signal if they're on board with the change or not. Right. And this is not giving miners control over the network. It's just saying that we don't want a chain split. We don't want to change the rules and create problems for Bitcoin. So it's important for miners to be mining the correct change. So if a change is kind of non-controversial, let's just let the miners let us know if they're ready for the change. And then if they all signal that they're ready, we can assume that we can make the change and we're not going to split the chain in half or create consensus problems. So that's a, it, it's a relatively reasonable way to go, I think. And Jeremy basically said, look, there's kind of a window every year for proposing a soft fork and we're in the window right now and I'm going to do this. I'm not a project manager. I'm a developer. I just want to put this out there. In a sense, he's saying, I'm just a messenger. And this is the message. The message is OpsyTV. Don't shoot the messenger. If you don't like it, don't support it. Like, create a consensus. 
but he's talked to a lot of people trying to find the way forward. And he's concluded that there really isn't one. So he's, he's proposing speedy trial and it's certainly getting people talking about it. And I support him moving forward with trying it. You know, none of us are getting any younger. And if you've been working on Bitcoin for a while and you have a proposal that you think is a really good idea, you have to shoot your shot. You know, you have to try to make your mark and see if the project is ready for it. And it's really unfortunate when people do that and then the pushback is so bad that they go and start a competing project that's a disaster. I'm thinking of uh, Roger Ver, but he was always kind of a con man. <laughs> you know, I think of I think of how most of the public, when they think of Bitcoin, they think of the price. They think of the, the money, right? But this is the kind of stuff that continues to go on, that continues to develop regardless of the price that Bitcoin's trading at. It doesn't matter if it's having an up day or a down day. This kind of diligent work, you know, we talked about a new version of Bitcoin Core coming out, BIP 119 and the community chewing it over. All of these improvements, all of this discussion, all of this conversation, none of it cares what the price is doing. It just continues on. And it's part of the fundamentals that make make Bitcoin so solid. You know, it's 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 Bitcoin's value is not determined by that number, the price number. It's determined by the community that's constantly improving it. They're working on building and making this better. They're investing in it all the time, even when the price is down. They're investing. They're just investing code and time. If you read through the mailing list and participate in development discussions. When people get into Bitcoin, it's like a virus rewriting their worldview. I mean, they're into it. It's it's like touching some sort of primordial power. It changes you. And, you know, I haven't fully drank from this poison chalice, but <laughs> I've, uh, I've maybe taken a sip or two and it's powerful. It's really interesting and it, it's cool. Um, so I understand why people are passionate about it. And I think that sometimes the Bitcoin community and even the development community can get this toxic label. It's arguable if it's deserved or not. Some people are certainly pretty pretty rude. But generally speaking, I think the core developers involved in Bitcoin today seem to really have their hearts in the right place, which is what's right for Bitcoin. And it's true that sometimes it's hard to know what that is in the moment. So I hope that anyone listening to this is interested enough to engage in this proposal and read through some of the links we've included and maybe form your own opinion. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The self-hosted show is a podcast about running your own digital infrastructure and having fun while doing it, or doing it to such a degree that it becomes a second job and you question why you ever got involved with computers in the first place. <laughs> True. Host your own media server, control your home IoT devices with a Raspberry Pi, and learn about new Wi-Fi standards like Zigbee and any other Z-Wave. Z-Wave. Matter. Matter. Sure. Helium. All right. Just, just kidding. Just kidding. That's a no. Actually, it is this weird Wi-Fi altcoin. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Wow. There's a there's a <laughs> like an article of the founder of Helium is tagging gray seals with helium so that they can be tracked. And I mean, it's 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 like clear ripple BS shilling. Helium's going to save the world. Anyway, don't get involved with helium. No. Get involved with self-hosting. And at selfhosted.show. And you can find that in any podcast app. Sorry, little uh, unscheduled interlude. It won't happen again. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So today's Bitcoin education segment is going to be much shorter and a little different. First of all, I attended a Bitcoin Core PR Review Club meeting on IRC this week, and it was really, really fun. So if you're interested in C software development, 
or Bitcoin in general, and you want to jump into the deep end, you can just join this IRC channel and read what people are talking about, about a new Bitcoin pull request. There are some really good study questions. It's generally a fun experience, and you're right there drinking from the fire hose, listening to very serious and interesting developers Intelligent. like Gloria Zhao, yeah. Merch, big names in Bitcoin. And they're right there on IRC. You could reach out and touch your computer screen. You could witness their galaxy brain in person. You know, I'll say this too about Bitcoin. And I know you're going to know this is true. Like Bitcoin is pretty much the only cryptocurrency you can look into the development process and feel more reassured and feel more confident about, about Bitcoin. Like when you look into other currencies development process, it's scary. You know, it's freaky. You get really unsettled. <laughs> So it's just an interesting little comparison. So it's like JavaScript developers sc <laughs> yes. screaming at each other. <laughs> yeah, totally. It is versus like C developers, right? Or like really low level, like sharp developers. Like the, the thing that I've really noticed is the Bitcoin development community are some of the smartest people in the world. I mean, they're very sharp people. Yeah, it's a project that self-selects. And so this is just a suggestion to check it out if you're interested. And our next article is from Upstream Data. Now, Upstream Data is a company. I think I might be giving away the milk for free on this one. Sorry, Chris. That's, I'll, I'll allow it. Okay. Well, essentially, Upstream Data is a mining company, and they kind of, what they want to do is help you mine at home or do small-scale Bitcoin mining. And so to that end, they sell this product, which is basically a big box that you can put miners in that dampens the noise because ASIC mining computers are loud, as in you will go deaf if you stand near one for too long. Your neighbors will complain if you run one in your garage. Right. And so what they suggest is buying one of their boxes and it kind of reduces the noise and kind of makes it something that you can do at a small scale, like in the back of a business or something that has a mixed use. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm surprised a podcaster didn't come up with this because podcasters are always trying to figure out how to like record the best audio quality in some small space and cut down on all noise. Uh, and they do a remarkable job. It looks like the things like eight decibels when you're when the box is all sealed up. Of course, of course, the tricky part was coming up with these thermal chambers and the cooling. So that way the thing doesn't just become a roaster. Right? Otherwise, you're basically making a slow cooker. It's still really hot. I think when they set it up with a, I want to say a what's minor, the ex exhaust port from the box is at like 130 degrees Fahrenheit. So it is hot. It's like I was saying, you can run these a little hotter. Uh, you're not going to get the same efficiency if you could get it cooler. You could actually crank up the clock. But unlike a traditional server, like your drives would start cooking at that temperature, right? But a Bitcoin miner, they'll take it. They'll take higher temps than most data centers will. Right. It's a rough and tumble piece of electronic hardware. Yeah. Now, I'm not actually sharing this because I think that you should go out and set up a home mining rig. I think that most of the time, it doesn't make economic sense to do that. It is an industry that is dominated by large players and mining companies with very special situations. Maybe they have access to stranded energy, so they get like free energy. Maybe they're even getting paid to clean up waste gases and they're burning them to mine Bitcoin. So there are some very complicated economics here. And I think that for small scale people, small scale people. Uh, retail, ordinary folk. I just feel like we're not small-scale people. I mean, you're certainly no. not. You run a global oh, I media empire. I would be in terms of Bitcoin mining, though. I mean, let's be honest. It's, right. it's, it, it, it would be the, a small-scale miner. It's the domain of businesses now. Right. But this guide has really good instructions on setting up a cold card with Sparrow Wallet. 
Oh yeah, that's true. That is a, you could just take that, you could lift that and just use that bit. Yeah. And so that's why I'm sharing it because if you have been interested in how do I just step-by-step set up a cold card hardware wallet and how would I work with Sparrow wallet using my own desktop wallet, you just need to look at section one and section four of this guide. And even if that you don't follow these steps exactly, if you're going to use a cold card, I would read a couple guides. So this there's some reference material here. I think it's a good good starting point. Totally. Nice recommendation. Also fun to look at the pictures of this project too. So even if you're never going to build a miner in a box and stick it out in your backyard like an AC unit, still pretty cool to go through this. But you're right. You could just totally lift the cold card stuff. Cold card is probably our favorite Bitcoin wallet, hardware wallet. Again, giving away the milk for free. You're right. This is, we should we should contact them and be like this is the last time. This is the last time. NVK, not one more time. Though I will mention that cold card hardware wallets are so cool that if you look on it's basically a little calculator in a clear plastic case and so you can see the circuit board. So you can kind of see if anyone's monkeyed with it, but if you need to destroy your cold card because I don't know, the the feds are closing in or something. There's actually a little mark on the cold card that says shoot here. <laughs> yeah, I'm not kidding. Yeah. So the, basically, CoinKite recommends if you need to destroy your cold card, just like blast it with a shotgun at this point or something. That's awesome. You, you got to go to their website. Go look at the cold card. They have so many neat features. Um, maybe somebody listening over there should send us a boost for giving them such a nice plug. But it's, you know, I don't actually own one, but if they wanted to send one into the show for a review, I'd give it a go. I hear the cold card Mark IV is coming out soon. <laughs> Uh, how do you try something like this? Do you throw your own Bitcoin on there? I guess. Or do you just buy some sats and throw them on there for a review? I'd have to figure that out. I but mean, you know what? For cold card, I'd be willing to do that hard work. Sounds like we are close to a deal, NVK. I'm going to assume that you're <laughs> nodding along. So we'll be in touch to let you know where to send those cold card Mark IVs. And now we are on to feedback. Just to remind everyone, if you want to get in touch, you can send an email to bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. And our first piece of feedback is actually from the email account, not a boost. So I will just go ahead and read this. Hi, how can Joe Blow sign slash date original digital art when he doesn't care about NFT minting? All I want to do is to sign and date, maybe license. It would be great if there was a no-nonsense fact or tutorial for an artist to start up some experiments. So they want to, they, they're presumably creating digital art, and they need a way to essentially date, date and sign and then issue a license to somebody that they own this. And the concern that our poster has, and I haven't said the name because they asked not to be identified, is that minting an NFT feels like creating an altcoin to them. And so they don't want to mess with altcoins, I guess, and they're just wondering how you would do this. I replied with some ideas, and I want to get your feedback. First of all, there are actually at least one NFT protocols on top of Bitcoin. I think the counterparty is an NFT protocol. And I've seen a market online that sells counterparty rare Pepe NFTs. So again, I don't know if this is the right answer for our listener, but counterparties out there and it exists and it's NFTs on Bitcoin. So yeah, I mean, if there was ever going to be a use case for NFTs, it does seem like something like this, you know, giving 
some kind of scarcity to a digital creation, uh, or at least documenting ownership, even if it can be copied, you know, somebody still technically owns it. And in theory, could probably enforce copyright laws, although that hasn't been. You, you can't. Yeah. Copyright is separate yeah. from NFT minting. Right. But and you so, could see in a, in a, like a future where if NFTs were used by the industrial art or if they were used in society as a regular way to like document you own a digital item, you could see regulation and laws catching up. Like that's where I could, if NFTs stick around, that's where I think they inevitably have to get. And if they get there, I, I could see the existence of an altcoin chain that is essentially an NFT platform like Solana is being pitched as, right? I don't think it's going to be sold, but. A little late to the game, Solana. NFTs are already crashing. So I, I wouldn't, I guess, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is I wouldn't completely dismiss NFTs for this use, but you also could just traditionally do it through, through existing means. Like artists can issue license today for their music for YouTubers, so that way they can signal to YouTube that they've actually purchased a license to it. So there are other methods today that don't even involve NFTs. If you're interested in signing and dating art, this can be done using PGP if you're a super nerd. So you can create your own PGP, pretty good privacy private key, using a piece of software like GNU PGP on Linux, which is, by the way, very hard to use. It's, it's known to be a very tricky piece of software. And then you can take this private key and you can make a message that says, I, Joe Blow, created this work of art on today, insert date, and then you can sign this message with your private key. And, you know, you can you can you then need to add this private key to a GPG key server to sort of add it to the web of trust so people know who it belongs to. And so you've demonstrated that you've signed this private key and you signed it. Now dating it is difficult actually. Like creating a a true date is very hard. So I suggested you could actually take this this signed message, and you could hash it into a Bitcoin transaction. And that would demonstrate that at least the message existed when that Bitcoin transaction was made. It could have existed earlier, but it definitely existed when that transaction made it onto the Bitcoin blockchain. Ah, I love this idea. And I've seen, you know what, now that you mentioned that, I know other people have done this as using that as sort of a, a record of truth, an immutable record of truth. That's a great idea. You could, would you use, I guess, the memo field for this? The little, like what people use for boosts now? How would you do this exactly? I've never like had any client software that lets me insert arbitrary messages into a transaction. Yeah, I think you'd have to use the command line. So I would probably, oh, and course. yeah, you'd need to use the Bitcoin Core CLI to do this. And I've never, I've never made a Bitcoin Core CLI transaction. So I can't tell you how to do that. That's just an idea. And obviously, it's very non-standard. It's very clunky. It would be someone to verify this. Someone would have to have a lot of information from you. And if you like, say, lost track of the transaction, all that work would disappear. So I don't know if this is a good solution. But I would just reiterate that licensing is a completely separate thing from Bitcoin. That that has to do with law, and it depends on where you are and what you're doing. So you have to have some background in the relevant license. That said, what you were talking about, Chris, about associating licenses and NFTs, I could imagine there being like standard licenses and then you hash the license. So there are like known hashes for license licenses. And then that might be a small amount and a small enough amount of data that you could incorporate that into a standard NFT format or something. So you could see in the NFT, oh, that probably has the GPL license or something. Right, right. Um, that would totally work. Yeah, because the tricky thing is, is the NFT is really not the document itself, but it is something that points to the thing. And that would either have to be like a PDF sitting at a URL that you kept there forever, or a hash would be the better way to go. 
Right, because if it was a hash, you could keep the documents offline and then provide them to for verification if someone wanted to compare the hash. And I wonder if as more and more normals and regular people start using Bitcoin, if these kinds of use cases will come up. Because you need kind of a, a real network effect of the everyday user to really take advantage of that. And I think that would be its biggest holder, hold back, I guess. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of the right way to put that. I, the biggest barrier to adoption is probably what I'm trying to say would be that you just don't have a, enough regular folks on there. But if you're catering to people that are in the Bitcoin community, well, that problem's solved already. Now it's time for our boosts, which is my favorite part of our podcast. And we don't have as many this week. And our first boost is from a friend of the show, True Grits who was listening to Cross Input Monetary Death Cult. Again, sorry for the name. I was on a bit of a soapbox on that one. <laughs> and it just keeps coming up again and again. I know. I Like, is that going to be a thing? Is someone always going to send a boost from that episode so I have to say it again? <laughs> Whatever you said in that episode, it stuck with people though, right? Got, you, got them boosting. I know. I, I guess this is how just podcasters or people on YouTube radicalize themselves. They're like, I'm getting so much engagement. engagement. Well, that is true on YouTube. When I go crazy, people really seem to like that. That algorithm is a cruel mistress that'll get you to do things you regret later. That's for sure. Let's just nip this in the bud. You know, the nice thing about Boost is it's not some computer algorithm controlled by Google. It's the audience directly. That's a real signal. So True Grit says, I remember back in my RuneScape days, people would get you to trade with them, and both sides had to accept the trade before it would go through. Scammers would start a trade with you, add their items, wait for you to accept, then take out their items, throw in worse ones, and accept it before you could rescind your offer. It sucked. This was mid-2000s. I guess this is what's happening with uh, Roblox. Just happened to my son last night. And it was tragic because he managed to end up getting through a series of trades, items that were individually worth like $700 on wherever they sell these things. He was so happy with himself. He was really feeling like, wow, dad, I, I went from like, I built everything back and now look, I got several, these are worth, seven, that's worth $700, that's worth $500. And then the next day he got scammed and his entire collection was wiped out. How did they steal his whole collection? I think it's essentially what you were just saying. They enticed the trade with some really valuable looking assets. And then they put everything up for trade and then they, they just do a little switcheroo on you and then they complete the trade. I don't actually know because I didn't see it go down, but it seemed like from the conversation I had with him, that's essentially what it was. Oh, that's brutal. Oh, it sucks. He's so sad because he was so proud of himself. And I'm just like, all right, let's just put this thing down. I mean, <laughs> let's just be done. <laughs> I got to be honest. It's not like he's touching the stove. I mean, he's just like smearing his face on it. Yeah. Like, can... And you know, part of it was like, oh, he's in, he's learning interesting concepts about holding some assets that appreciate in value and not trading them right away. And I'm like, this is some valuable lessons he's learning. But he's also learning that people on the internet can be mean. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Yeah. Well, sorry to hear that. Now, our next boost is from Awesome Matt. I love Awesome Matt. He is awesome. This is from Side Talk Spectacular, our last episode, where we get a little indulgent and just talk. We forgot about the audience for a moment. Sorry about that. No, never. Sorry, audience. We promise to never forget you, except we've already done it once, so you (laughs) shouldn't believe us. Don't trust. Verify. They're just like, I just think of them as hanging out as part of the conversation. You know, they're in here having the conversation with us, but silently. And their boosts often have good advice. So Awesome Matt says, best way to start making SATS conversion easier is a Satoshis to dollar widget on your phone. Now, just to recall, Satoshis are the base unit of Bitcoin. So one Bitcoin contains 100 million Satoshis. 
So Satoshis are actually a very reasonable unit to price things in because I think today one Satoshi is like two, sorry, one dollar is 2,000 Satoshis. Or, or just uh, over 2,000, something like that. But it's oh, close, yeah. Actually, I shouldn't have guessed because Matt is about to tell us. Oh. He says, I take my paycheck in Bitcoin and I do the conversion in my head for how many sats to transfer at a time. At 40K BTC, it's 2,500 sats per dollar, 25K sats for $10, 50K sats for $20, etc. Cool. I still struggle to go from BTC to sats, though. I have to count it out every time. Lol, that is so true. Yep. <laughs> like, because you'll see in the wallet, like, 0.001 Bitcoin. And you're looking at that and you're like, is that a thousand Bitcoin? Is it 10,000? What is that again? This is where I always pull up my old friend, Wolfram Alpha. Uh, Wolfram Alpha, can I speak? I don't know. And I just do the, you can actually just write it out in English. You could say like 5,000 sats in USD and it'll just do the conversion for you. Now, our next post is from our mysterious Satoshi. Oh. So remember from Castomatic, we got a boost from someone who mentioned recovering a wallet from 2009. Right. So we were like, oh, it was Satoshi. Well, maybe it wasn't. Yes, it must have been 2011, not 2009, as my mistaken brain was telling me. I had snagged a few 0.05 BTC payments into a multi-bit wallet. Never even heard of that wallet. Oh yeah, multi-bit, sure. That were just being given away if one asked. I'm nowhere near smart enough to be Satoshi, face palm emoji. Yeah, do you remember the Bitcoin faucet for a really short period of time that was giving away half a Bitcoin every time you went to the webpage? Was you, that Gavin Andreessen's? Yeah, Gavin did it. You just went to the webpage and just hit a button and got half a Bitcoin. <laughs> just for going to a stupid website. You know, Gavin, you gave away so much Bitcoin, you bootstrapped so many people, and we still give you so much crap. I, I don't know if you deserve it. That is rough. But you also suggested that gigabyte blocks would be no big deal because cell phone networks were getting better. That was a bad call in retrospect. We cannot forgive this. No. I mean, it's like, have you ever used Verizon? What were you thinking? <laughs> Maybe he heard their 5G pitch and believed it. <laughs> I just think if you believe advertising from U.S. telecom monopolies, maybe you shouldn't have commit access to Bitcoin Core. Can't argue with that. So I'd just like to respond to this boost and say... Nice try, Satoshi. Yeah. Nice try. What else would Satoshi say? Exactly. This is such a perfect response. I'm so nearly convinced you're not Satoshi that only Satoshi could have written it. Brilliant. Nearly got us. Well, that cinches it because that's exactly what you'd expect Satoshi to say. I actually wrote that out word for word last week and I said, if he's Satoshi, this is what he's going to say. <laughs> <laughs> you fell right into our trap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like that Satoshi's a listener, though. That's something we can be proud of. I know. I mean, we can keep going until our new episode count just goes to one listener. And we'll be like, oh, well, it's, at least it's Satoshi. We hope. <laughs> Satoshi will have to check in from time to time so we know he's still listening. I know. He'll just keep denying it. Oh, that's fine. As long as he does it via boost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Grab a shovel. You keep digging yourself yeah. deeper. Yeah. Now what you got to figure is what would he say this time? Write that down and see if he says the same okay, thing. Okay. I'm writing it down now. <laughs> Our next boost is from a guy named Ryan. Hey, Chris, you know when you make a joke and it sounds good in your head, then it sounds like a hateful slight directed at your favorite podcaster when it's read aloud? Well, that's what I experienced this week when you guys read my last boost. Sorry for mocking you about pronouncing usernames. You handled it with class. Oh, and I called them brave attention tokens, and the proper name is actually basic atten attention tokens. Oh, yeah. I've made that same mistake. I make that same mistake all the time. I always call them brave attention tokens. No worries at all. I am horrible at pronouncing usernames. They're crazy. 
a guy named Ryan. That's a very nice message, and I it just speaks to how nice a community we already have, which is awe-inspiring. That's true. Yeah, so thanks so much. And yeah, we, we talked about the uh, basic attention token, and I, I wonder how that's going to go. Um, it's interesting, but um, James Rubin, the developer behind BIP119, Op Check Template Verify, he actually created essentially the basic attention token in Bitcoin as his first project. So this was in, I want to say 2015. Okay. And he created this, it was some framework where you could replace advertising on a website with crypto mining. I remember this. And he actually got a very scary letter from some financial regulator in New Jersey. And it wasn't a, they weren't charging them with anything or even investigating them. It was this letter where they asked them a bunch of questions, but the questions had been taken from a, like a, a statutes around computer crime. Oh, sure. And basically, if you answered yes to any of them, it was like mandatory 15-year jail sentence. And so Jeremy was totally freaked. He, he got help from the EFF, the Ele- Electronic Frontier Foundation, in responding to it. And afterwards, he just thought, wow, contributing to Bitcoin, it could be a rough way to go. You know, you need to be careful. And ultimately, the idea turned to one that scammers use. So you could see how the public would have been against it, ultimately. Uh, um, but for a hot minute, the idea was is that you would go to a web page and the, it would be transparent, but you would just decide to like burn a little CPU time to help monetize the website you were visiting. That idea on the surface is not a bad one because I did this. I went to a couple of people that were trying it and I opened up a tab on their website and I would leave it open for a few hours and just help them mine some Bitcoin. It felt like an easy way and I had plenty of CPU power to spare, but um, just knowing what we know about ransomware and all of the all of the hacks of systems to just to run cryptocurrency miners and how it's become so associated with it, a negative thing, this never would have, never, ever, ever would have worked. But for just a minute in time, it would seem like a neat idea. Yeah, because it's almost like you're sending someone a few pennies worth of electricity. I think it's just a very inefficient transfer mechanism. And, and, and not to mention CPU mining pretty quickly became pointless. Right. And then there's still crypto mining malware attacks because if you're a malware distributor and you get a million machines crypto mining, even though CPU mining isn't very efficient, you're stealing all of the energy and bandwidth and everything. So it's still worth doing, I guess. And they could mine a a currency that has a much lower difficulty rate and then they can sell that, right? So, Oh my God, Monero, because it's CPU mined, you could do that. Monero is a pretty common one when Linux boxes out in the cloud get compromised, somebody will install a Monero miner on there and just CPU mine away until somebody notices. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, did not know that. Now, our last boost is from Thornton, Maryland. Liquid and RSK can already do tokens as a sidechain to Bitcoin. I've mentioned Liquid before. Space chains are another way to build almost any blockchain you want from Bitcoin mining fees. Terra was just the newest idea to do tokens on Bitcoin. I mean, there's a lot we could get into with sidechain stuff. And I feel like I am still very much just wrapping my head around Liquid in general. So I'd be down to talk about any of that stuff at any point. Yeah, I almost want to do an episode per sidechain. I think listeners will know that I am a huge liquid shill. Again, where is my sponsorship, Blockstream? Yeah, Blockstream, come on. What's up? They're like, you've already given away all the milk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But RSK, I think, is a little more, dare I say, controversial, because I think RSK is actually a 
Ethereum virtual machine fork that does some sort of peg with Bitcoin. Okay. Hmm. I really avoided looking into all of this stuff because it always felt like the antithesis of what Bitcoin is about, but it's clear the functionality is being demanded by the marketplace and you see real value in liquid. So it's starting to change my perspective. I'm also really interested in Paul Storks. I hope to be able to maybe, maybe we could have him on sometime. And this is a Bitcoin developer who I think you can describe as an ultimate Bitcoin platform maximalist who essentially wants to add a, a BIP called BIP 300, which I think is the blind merge mining BIP. And what this could do is add the ability to create sidechains that are validated by Bitcoin. And so instead of all of these altcoins being separate chains, they would somehow have a peg in between that chain and Bitcoin. And this is sort of a, an answer to, obviously, people want to try different things. And so Paul says, look, if we had blind merge mining, then Roger Ver wouldn't have had to create Bitcoin Cash. He would have created the Bitcoin Cash sidechain that you could have pegged into. And you know maybe Ethereum would be one of these or, or, or is the term drive chain? I'm not sure what the, te- the correct term is, but essentially it would be these side chains that are dependent on Bitcoin for their security. And so the activity on these side chains supports Bitcoin security by demanding f- transactions and fees that go to Bitcoin miners. Fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's very controversial. I'm trying to study up on it. I think that based on my reading for this show, and I'm thinking of the Pete Rizzo article that talks about the different flavors of Bitcoin maximalism. I certainly started as a Bitcoin monetary maximalist because I came from an economics background and it was something I could comprehend. As I grapple with the technology more, I suspect that I may fall somewhere in between this sort of monetary and network maximalism and and get closer to that platform maximalism. Because I think that there are technical limitations to how useful Bitcoin can be. And if you make something that everyone in the world wants to participate in, and then they discover that they can't because there's not enough block space, that's a problem. Now, maybe that problem is solved because the demand for this use case will then spur new innovation. So I don't mean to sound like I'm a you know crying wolf or anything. But I think it's something to think about. You know, what should we do except grapple with hard problems? Yeah. And uh, I like to just sit back and pop the popcorn. I've always really been into it, as you know, for the technology. And so I have a little bit more of a, all right, I'll entertain the idea of proof of stake for a bit, you know, and I'll give that six months of consideration um, kind of come at because I'm always interested in new technological developments. And that's why I'm always like, okay, maybe there is a multi-chain world out there where we're doing smart contracts and NFTs on, on something that's more like a developer platform. And then you've got Bitcoin, which is something more like sound money. And, you know, I'm always kind of kind of trying to reassess how maximalist I am on any particular category. But as we get deeper into these particular things, I find often that things, the further you go away from Bitcoin, the little more sketch things go, the higher risk things get. And so if these side chains could bring sort of the confidence and security that people have with using Bitcoin, but also offer some of the functionality that the altcoins offer without having to leave the Bitcoin ecosystem, that could be very, very, very advantage, uh, advantageous to Bitcoin users. I think the only problem there is you better get moving because all the altcoins that are offering these features aren't sitting still and the market's just going to start developing features around what they offer. That's a really good point. I think with the Paul Stork's drive chain proposal, I want to say drive chain. I think Let's go with it. I like that. His idea is that his 
his implementation means that the Bitcoin blockchain and Bitcoin miners don't need to care about what these sidechains are doing, but the sidechains need to care about Bitcoin. And so that's the model that he says works. I, I, you know, I haven't evaluated it yet, but it seems interesting. And, you know, I think it's true that the altcoin space is very dynamic. A lot of things are happening there. But actually, one criticism of Paul Storks and his proposal is that actually all of these other chains with all of these other use cases, they're really just financial scams. And so the point is to create a new token that can be used by early adopters to dump on later adopters. Like it really is this kind of pump and dump scheme fundamentally. And so why risk Bitcoin by adding this functionality that no one really wants? Because really what they want to do is pump and dump tokens. And you're not going to be able to do that the same way with these sidechains. I think that's yet to be proven. I think you could speculate on a sidechain maybe, but we'll see. Any final thoughts? No, I think I pretty much agree with you. It's a, it's a wait and see. Uh, it is definitely a very early days. It's funny. We t- I'm thinking, I'm just thinking back to the show today. We talked a lot about things that are coming down the pipe that we don't really know what the impact's going to be just yet. And it's so often we talk about Bitcoin being slow and nothing really happens in Bitcoin. And yet this episode, we talked a lot about things that are coming that are going to offer features that there's going to be big debates about. And we don't really understand even how it's going to impact things long term. So I think that is a bit of a myth that Bitcoin is boring, that there's not a lot going on. There's a lot. There is a lot going on and it never seems boring to me. I think that that's part of the altcoin FUD. All of these altcoins, they're not competing with the U.S. dollar. They're not competing with the flawed traditional finance world. They're competing with Bitcoin. And so they spit a lot of fire. They talk about Bitcoin energy consumption. They talk about Bitcoin's slow development process. And I think it's basically throwing shade so that we don't look too closely at the screaming matches in their development channels and how laughably silly their economic models are. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> and on that note, this has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Thursday, April 28th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with Chris. See you next time.